Chapter 3 I will speak to you tonight, sir, after supper, said his father sharply a second day later, when Robin, meeting his father setting out before dinner, had asked him to give him an hour's talk. Robin's mind had worked fiercely and intently since the encounter in the hall. His father had sat silent both at supper and afterwards, and the next day was the same. The old man spoke no more than was necessary, shortly and abruptly, scarcely looking his son in the face, and the rest of the day they had not met. It was plain to the boy that something must follow his defiance, and he had prepared all his fortitude to meet it. Yet the second night had passed and no word had been spoken, and by the second morning Robin could bear it no longer. He must know what was in his father's mind. And now the appointment was made, and he would soon know all. His father was absent from dinner, and the boy dined alone. He learned from Dick Sampson that his father had ridden southwards. It was not until Robin had sat down nearly half an hour later than supper time that the old man came in. The frost was gone, deep mud had succeeded, and the rider was splashed above his thighs. He stayed at the fire for his boots to be drawn off and to put on his soft leather shoes, while Robin stood up dutifully to await him. Then he came forward, took his seat without a word, and called for supper. In ominous silence the meal proceeded, and with the same thunderous air, when it was over, his father said grace and made his way, followed by his son, into the parlor behind. He made no motion at first to pour out his wine, then he helped himself twice and left the jug for Robin. Then suddenly he began without moving his head. "'I wish to know your intentions,' he said, with irony so serious that it seemed gravity. "'I cannot flog you or put you to school again, and I must know how we stand to one another.' Robin was silent. He had looked at his father once or twice, but now sat downcast and humble in his place. With his left hand he fumbled, out of sight, Mr. Maine's pair of beads. His father, for his part, sat with his feet stretched to the fire, his head propped on his hand, not doing enough courtesy to his son even to look at him. "'Do you hear me, sir?' "'Yes, sir, but I do not know what to say.' I wish to know your intentions. Do you mean to thwart and disobey me in all matters, or only in those that have to do with religion? I do not wish to thwart or disobey you, sir, in any matters except where my conscience is touched. The substance of this answer had been previously rehearsed, and the latter part of it even verbally. Be good enough to tell me what you mean by that. Robin licked his lips carefully and sat up a little in his chair. You told me, sir, that it was your intention to leave the church. Then how can I tell you of what priests are here, or where Mass is to be said? You would not have done so to one who was not a Catholic six months ago. The man sneered visibly. There is no need, he said. It is Mr. Simpson who is to say Mass tomorrow, and it is at Tansley that it will be said at six o'clock in the morning. If I choose to tell the justices, you cannot prevent it. He turned round in a flare of anger. Do you think I shall tell the justices? Robin said nothing. Do you think I shall tell the justices? roared the man insistently. No, sir, now I do not. The other growled gently and sank back. But if you think that I will permit my son to flout and to my face in my own hall and not to trust his own father, why, you are immeasurably mistaken, sir. So I ask you again how far you intend to thwart and disobey me. A kind of despair surged up in the boy's heart, despair at the fruitlessness of this ironical and furious sort of talk, and with the despair came boldness. Father, will you let me speak outright, without thinking that I mean to insult you? I do not, I swear I do not. Will you let me speak, sir? His father growled again a sort of acquiescence, and Robin gathered his forces. He had prepared a kind of defense that seemed to him reasonable, and he knew that his father was at least just. They had been friends, these two, always, in an underground sort of way, which was all that the relations of father and son in such days allowed. The old man was curt, obstinate, and even boisterous in his anger, 
but there was a kindliness beneath that the boy always perceived, a kindliness which permitted the son an exceptional freedom of speech, which he used always in the last resort, and which he knew his father loved to hear him use. This, then, was plainly a legitimate occasion for it, and he had prepared himself to make the most of it. He began formally. "'Sir,' he said, "'you have brought me up in the old faith, sent me to Mass, and to the priest to learn my duty, and I have obeyed you always. You have taught me that a man's duty to God must come before all else, as our Saviour himself said, too. And now you turn on me, and bid me forget all that, and come to church with you. It is not for me to say anything to my father about his own conscience, I must leave that alone. But I am bound to speak of mine when occasion rises, and this is one of them.' I should be dishonoring and insulting you, sir, if I did not believe you when you said you would turn Protestant, and a man who says he will turn Protestant has done so already. It was for this reason, then, and no other, that I did not answer you the other day, not because I wished to be disobedient to you, but because I must be obedient to God. I did not lie to you, as I might have done, and say that I did not know who the priest was, nor where Mass was to be said, but I would not answer, because it is not right or discreet for a Catholic to speak of these things to those who are not Catholics. How dare you say I am not a Catholic, sir? A Catholic, sir, to my mind, said Robin steadily, is one who holds to the Catholic Church and to no other. I mean nothing offensive, sir. I mean what I said I meant and no more. It is not for me to condemn. I should think not, snorted the old man. Well, sir, that is my reason. And further... He stopped, doubtful. Well, sir, what further? Well, I cannot come to the church with you at Easter. His father wheeled round savagely in his chair. Father, hear me out and then say what you will. I say I cannot come with you to church at Easter because I am a Catholic, but I do not wish to trouble or disobey you openly. I will go away from home for that time. Good Mr. Barton will cause no trouble. He wants nothing but peace. Father, you are not just to me. You have taught me too much, or you have not given me time enough. Again he broke off, knowing that he had said what he did not mean, but the old man was on him like a hawk. Not time enough, you say? Well, then. No, sir, I, I did not mean that, wailed Robin suddenly. I do not mean that I should change if I had a hundred years. I am sure I shall not, but... You said not time enough, said the other meditatively. Perhaps if I give you time... Father, I beg of you to forget what I said. I did not mean to say it. It is not true, but Marjorie said... Marjorie? What has Marjorie to do with it? Robin found himself suddenly in deep waters. He had plunged and found that he could not swim. This was the second mistake he had made in saying what he did not mean. Again the courage of despair came to him, and he struck out further. I must tell you of that too, sir, he said. Mistress Marjorie and I... He stopped, overwhelmed with shame. His father turned full around and stared at him. Go on, sir. Robin seized his glass and emptied it. Well, sir, Mistress Marjorie and I love one another. We are but boy and girl, sir, we know that. Then his father laughed. It was laughter that was at once hearty and bitter, and with it came the closing of the open door in the boy's heart. As there came out after it, sentence after sentence of scorn and contempt, the bolts, so to say, were shot and the key turned. It might all have been otherwise if the elder man had been kind, or if he had been sad or disappointed, or even if he had been merely angry. But the soreness and misery in the old man's heart, misery at his own acts and words, and at the outrage he was doing to his own conscience, turned his judgment bitter. And with that bitterness his son's heart shut tight against him. "'But boy and girl,' sneered the man, "'a couple of blind puppies, I would say, rather,' You with your falcons and mare and your other toys and the down on your chin and your conscience, and she with her white face and her mother and her linen parlor and her beads. His charity prevailed so far as to hinder him from more outspoken contempt. And you two babes have been prattling of conscience and prayers together, I make no doubt, and thinking of yourselves Cecilies and Lawrences and all the holy martyrs, and all this without a by your leave, I dare wager, from parent or father, and thinking yourselves man and wife, and you fondling her and she too modest to be fondled, and... 
The plain truth struck him with sudden splendor, at least sufficiently strong to furnish him with a question. And have you told Mistress Marjorie about your sad rogue of a father? Robin, white with anger, held his lips grimly together, and the wrath blazed in an instant up from the scornful old heart, whose very love was turned to gall. Tell me, sir, I will have it, he cried. Robin looked at him with such hard fury in his eyes that for a moment the man winced. Then he recovered himself, and again his anger rose to the brim. You need not look at me like that, you hound. Tell me, I say. I will not, shouted Robin, springing to his feet. The old man was up too by now, with all the anger of his son hardened by his dignity. You will not? No. For a moment the fate of them both still hung in the balance. If, even at this instant, the father had remembered his love rather than his dignity, had thought of the past and its happy years rather than of the blinding, swollen present, or, on the other side, if the son had but submitted if only for an hour, and obeyed in order that he might rule later, the whole course might have run aright, and no hearts had been broken, and no blood shed. But neither would yield. There was the fierce northern obstinacy in them both, the gentle birth sharpened its edge, the defiant refusal of the son, the wounding contempt of the father, not for his son only, but for his son's love. These things inflamed the hearts of both to madness. The father seized his ultimate right and struck his son across the face. Then the son answered by his only weapon. For a sensible pause he stood there, his fresh face paled to chalkiness, except where the print of five fingers slowly reddened. Then he made a courteous little gesture, as if to invite his father to sit down, and as the other did so, slowly and shaking all over, struck at him by careful and calculated words, delivered with a stilted pompous air. You have beaten me, sir, so of course I obey. Yes, I told Mistress Marjorie Manners that my father no longer counted himself a Catholic, and would publicly turn Protestant at Easter, so as to please her grace and be in favor with the court and with the county justices. And I have told Mr. Babington so as well, and also Mr. Thomas Fitzherbert. I will spare you the pain, sir, of making any public announcement on the matter. It is always son's duty to spare his father pain. Then he bowed, wheeled, and went out the room. Two hours later, Robin was still lying completely dressed on his bed in the dark. It was a plain little chamber where he lay, fireless, yet not too cold, since it was wainscoted from floor to ceiling, and looked out eastwards upon the pleasance, with rooms on either side of it. A couple of presses sunk in the walls held his clothes and boots, a rush-bottomed chair stood by the bed, and the bed itself, laid immediately on the ground, was such as was used in most good houses by all except the master and mistress, or any sick members of the family, a straw mattress and a wooden pillow. His bows and arrows with a pair of dags or pistols hung on a rack against the wall at the foot of his bed, and a little brass cross engraved with the figure of the crucified hung over it. It was such a chamber as any son of a house might have, who was a gentleman and not luxurious. A hundred thoughts had gone through his mind since he had flung himself down here shaking with passion, and these had begun already to repeat themselves like a turning wheel in his head. Marjorie, his love for her, his despair of that love, his father, all that they had been one to the other in the past, the little or worse than little that they would be one to the other in the future, the priest's face as he had seen it three days ago, what would be done at Easter, what later, all these things colored and embittered now by his own sorrow for his words to his father and the knowledge that he had shamed himself when he should have suffered in silence. These things turned continually in his head, and he was too young and too simple to extricate one from the other all at once. Things had come about in a manner which yesterday he would not have thought possible. He had never before spoken so to one whom he owed reverence, neither had this one ever treated him so. His father had stood always to him for uprightness and justice. He had no more questioned these virtues in his father than in God. Words or acts of either might be strange or incomprehensible, yet the virtues themselves remained always beyond a doubt. And now, with the opening of the door which his father's first decision had accomplished, a crowd of questions and judgments had rushed in, and a pillar of earth and heaven was shaken at last. It is a dreadful day when, for the first time to a young man or maiden, any shadow of God, however unworthy, begins to tremble.
He understood presently, however, what an elder man, or a less childish, would have understood at once, that these things must be dealt with one by one, and that that which lay nearest to his hand was his own fault. Even then he fought with his conscience. He told himself that no lad of spirit could tolerate such insults against his love, to say nothing of the injustice against himself that had gone before. But, being honest, he presently inquired of what spirit such a lad would be, not of that spirit which Marjorie would approve, nor the gentle-eyed priest he had spoken with. Well, the event was certain with such as Robin, and he was presently standing at the door of his room, his boots drawn off and laid aside, listening, with a heart beating in his ears to hinder him for any sound from beneath. He did not know whether his father were abed or not. If not, he must ask his pardon at once. He went downstairs at last, softly, to the parlor, and peeped in. All was dark except for the glimmer from the stove, and his heart felt lightened. Then, as he was cold with his long vigil outside his bed, he stirred the embers into a blaze and stood warming himself. How strange and passionless, he thought, looked this room, after the tempest that had raged in it just now. The two glasses stood there, his own not quite empty, and the jug between them. His father's chair was drawn to the table as if he were still sitting in it. His own was flung back as he had pushed it from him in his passion. There was an old print over the stove at which he looked presently. It had been his mother's, and he remembered it as long as his life had been. It was of Christ carrying his cross. His shame began to increase on him. How wickedly he had answered with every word a wound. He knew that the most poisonous of them all were false. He had known it even while he spoke them. It was not to curry favor with her grace that his father had lapsed. It was that his temper was tried beyond bearing by those continual fines and rebuffs. The old man's patience was gone, that was all. And he, his son, had not said one word of comfort or strength. He had thought of himself and his own wrongs, and being reviled, he had reviled again. There stood against the wall between the windows a table and an oaken desk that held the estate bills and books, and beside the desk were laid clean sheets of paper, an ink pot, a pounce box, and three or four feather pens. It was here that he wrote, being newly from school, at his father's dictation, or his father sometimes wrote himself, with pain and labor, the few notices or letters that were necessary. So he went to this and sat down at it. He pondered a little, then he wrote a single line of abject regret. I ask your pardon and God's, sir, for the wicked words I said before I left the parlor. R. He folded this and addressed it with the proper superscription, and left it lying there. It was a strange ride that he had back from Tansley next morning after Mass. Dick Sampson had met him with the horses in the stable court at Matstead a little after four o'clock in the morning, and together they had ridden through the pitch darkness, each carrying a lantern fastened to his stirrup. So complete was the darkness, however, and so small and confined the circle of light cast by the tossing light, that, for all they saw, they might have been riding round and round in a garden. Now trees showed grim and towering for an instant, then gone again. Now their eyes were upon the track, the pools, the rugged ground, the soaked meadow grass. Half a dozen times the river glimmered on their right, turbid and forbidding. Once there shone in the circle of light the eyes of some beast, pig, or stag, seen and vanished again. But the return journey was another matter, for they needed no lanterns, and the dawn rose steadily overhead, showing all that they passed in ghostly fashion, up to final solidity. It resembled, in fact, the dawn of faith in a soul. First from the darkness, outlines only emerged, vast and sinister, of such an appearance that it was impossible to tell their proportions or distances. The skyline a mile away, beyond the Derwent, might have been the edge of a bank a couple of yards off. The glimmering pool on the lower meadow path might be the lighted window of a house across the valley. There succeeded to outlines a kind of shaded tint, all worked in gray like a print, clear enough to distinguish tree from boulder and sky from water, yet not clear enough to show the texture of anything. The third stage was that in which colors began to appear, yet flat and dismal, holding, it seemed, no light, yet reflecting it, and all in an extraordinary cold clearness. Nature seemed herself, yet struck to dumbness. No breeze stirred the twigs overhead or the undergrowth through which they rode. 
Once, as the two, riding a little apart, turned suddenly together, up a ravine into thicker woods, they came upon a herd of deer, who stared on them without any movement that the eye could see. Here a stag stood with two hinds beside him. Behind, Robin saw the backs and heads of others that lay still. Only the beasts kept their eyes upon them as they went, watching, as if it were a picture only that went by. So, by little and little, the breeze stirred like a walking man. Cocks crew from over the hills, one to the other. Dogs barked far away, till the face of the world was itself again, and the smoke from Matstead rose above the trees in front. Robin had ridden in the dawn a hundred times before, yet never before had he so perceived that strange deliberateness and sleep of the world. And he had ridden too, perhaps twenty times at such an hour, with his father beside him, after Mass on some occasion. Yet it seemed to him this time that it was the Mass which he had seen, and his own solitariness, that had illuminated his eyes. It was dreadful to him, and yet it threw himself more than ever on himself and God, that his father would ride with him so no more. Henceforward he would go alone, or with a servant only. He would, alone, go up to the door of house or barn and rap four times with his riding whip. Alone he would pass upstairs through the darkened house to the shrouded room, garret, or bedchamber, where the group was assembled, all in silence, where presently a dark figure would rise and light the pair of candles, and then himself a ghost best there by their light, throwing huge shadows on wainscot and ceiling as his arms went this way and that. And then, alone of all that were of blood relationship to him, he would witness the holy sacrifice. How long that would be so, he did not know. Something surely must happen that would prevent it, or at least some day he would ride so with Marjorie, whom he had seen this morning across the dusky candlelit gloom praying in a corner. Or, maybe with her, would entertain the priest and open the door to the worshippers who streamed in, like bees to a flower garden, from farm and manor and village. He could not forever ride alone from Matstead and meet his father's silence. One thing more, too, had moved him this morning and that, the sight of the young priest at the altar whom he had met on the moor. Here, more than ever, was the gentle priestliness and innocency apparent. He stood there in his red vestments. He moved this way and that. He made his gestures. He spoke in undertones, lit only by the pair of wax candles, more Levitical than ever in such a guise, yet more unsuited than ever to such exterior circumstances. Surely this man should say Mass forever, yet surely never again ride over the moors to do it amidst enemies. He was of the strong castle and the chamber, not of the tent and the battle. And yet it was of such soldiers as these, as well as of the sturdy and the strong, that Christ's army was made. It was in broad daylight, though under a weeping sky, that Robin rode into the court at Matstead. He shook the rain from his cloak within the screens, and stamped to get the mud away. And, as he lifted his hat to shake it, his father came in from the pleasance. Robin glanced up at him, swift and shy, half-smiling, expecting a word or a look. His father must surely have read his little letter by now, and forgiven him. But the smile died away again as he met the old man's eyes. They were as hard as steel. His clean-shaven lips were set like a trap, and, though he looked at his son, it seemed that he did not see him. He passed through the screens and went down the steps into the court. The boy's heart began to beat so as near to sicken him after his long fast and his ride. He told himself that his father could not have been into the parlor yet, though he knew, even while he thought it, that this was false comfort. He stood there an instant, waiting, hoping that even now his father would call to him, but the strong figure passed resolutely on out of sight. Then the boy went into the hall and swiftly threw it. There on the desk in the window lay the pen he had flung down last night, but no more. The letter was gone, and as he turned away, he saw lying among the wood ashes of the cold stove a little crumpled ball. He stooped and drew it out. It was his letter, tossed there after the reading. His father had not taken the pains to keep it safe, nor even to destroy it. <laughs>